blows up its global footprint, it's crucial to avoid European navel-gazing. Instead, Europe needs to engage partners around the world on their expectations and concerns about the EU's activities and ambitions. It's time for Europe to listen carefully and with curiosity. Welcome to Europe Listens, where we explore issues, countries and regions that often receive too little attention in European discussions of global affairs. I'm Raphael Loss, ECFR's coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. For our third episode today, we're joined by Dr. Matsidiso Moeti, who will help organization's regional director for Africa to discuss global public health in times of COVID. Dr. Moiti is a public health veteran with 40 years of national and international experience. Prior to joining the WHO in 1999, she worked with the UN program on HIV AIDS and the UN Children's Fund UNICEF. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Let's get going then. Um, mm -hmm. COVAX has so far shipped um, just over 1 billion um, COVID-19 vaccines. About one quarter of these have gone to countries in Africa. At the same time, statements from African leaders suggest that the continent is entering a kind of post-COVAX moment where calls for self-sufficiency, capacity building, and exchange of knowledge and technology are being seen as increasingly important. So is COVID a success? What are its shortcomings? <laughs> Okay, that's a very interestingly framed question. You know, I, I think primarily COVAX has been a salutary lesson learned uh, for multilateral collaboration, for solid international solidarity, and for the sense that we're in it all together with a view to delivering real equity to match the intentions and narratives. So it's, it's been a quite steep, learning curve at times quite painful, but I look at it in a positive way for some of the results that have come out of the difficulties that uh, COVAX has, uh, has encountered. I mean, certainly we see that uh, COVAX has not been able to deliver as has initially been foreseen for, um, sorry, for the African, for the African continent. It, it, and there's no doubt that Africa lags behind um, all regions of the world in terms of vaccine uh, vaccine coverage. Um, and, you know, some of that was uh, unplanned, inevitable. COVAX came out of uh, a, a relationship mainly between Gavi, which is playing a very strong role in COVAX, with one uh, producer of vaccines, the Serum Institute in India. So when they then encountered a very difficult situation in a steep wave with many deaths, they uh, then uh, stopped producing for COVAX. They stopped delivering for, for COVAX. But, but I think, you know, the other challenges that have occurred, of course, was that countries that had the ability were part of COVAX, but were also part of other ways of acquiring vaccines. And one of the results of this is that the upper-income countries reserved a lot of the production of vaccines for themselves in addition to being part of COVAX. And uh, I'm sure you've heard the, the African Union's uh, leaders that are participating in the AVAT, in, in the NATAS team, repeatedly indicate that not only, you know, African countries weren't just looking for charity in donated doses, they wanted to buy vaccine supplies that were simply not available because they had been booked up, reserved by countries that had contributed financially in partnership with the pharmaceutical companies to the production of these vaccines. So, so that's in a way a challenge to this 
we're all in it together, equity, global solidarity principle that has been so repeatedly um, articulated. Um, in addition uh, to that, the, the donations, which were very much appreciated by, by African countries, when they initially uh, started with relatively modest volumes, you know, I think if you're working in trying to implement a quite unprecedentedly intense and in terms of scale, quite unprecedented adult vaccination campaign. Now, we're used to vaccinating children, but to an undertaking of this nature is um, virtually unknown in the world, happening worldwide at the same time, unfortunately, which just added to, to the challenge. But when you're doing that and you're doing other things as well, in a health system that has challenges, you need a certain level of predictability of the supplies. You know, in order to sit down and plan, you need to know when you're expecting roughly this at this time. And very importantly, the matter of um, the expiry dates of these vaccines also has been important. So, so the donations have been very modest in volume uh, coming into systems that were planning for initially, let me say, they, they have grown in volume since, and were sometimes announced at pretty short notice before delivery. Uh, so challenging the planning for rolling these out. And um, it was in a context where, you know, it wasn't simply that you're going to vaccinate everybody. You needed to target certain groups in certain places. The, the, the vaccination delivery needed to be pretty nimbly responding to the data about where the epicenter in a country happened to be at a particular time, who was most at risk, where, and needed a certain agility in adjusting the planning. And, and you know, at the same time as almost half of African countries were carrying out um, campaigns against vaccine-derived poliovirus at the same time, as well as other outbreaks that are part of the, the reality of the all the time. So, so now there's this, this big challenge of, there has been the challenge of when the vaccine is coming, who from, which vaccine, what are the conditions that this vaccine requires in order to be used optimally. And I'm uh, sorry about that, this, this meeting again. And then very importantly then, the expiry dates uh, have, have played a role. So um, in my view, at the end of the day, if we look at what COVAX has been able to deliver in, in African countries, it's uh, it's managed to, to deliver uh, about 63% of the 700 million doses that African countries have received. And within, so about 435 million doses, about half of these have been donations. So COVAX has also been able to facilitate the donations process and link it to countries' capacities and latterly, very much linked to countries' ability to absorb vaccines. So uh, on the whole, I would say it's been a big challenge. It's been a massive learning, learning curve. And I think anything that's organized in the future on a multilateral basis, I'm certain we'll learn from this, uh, this COVAX experience. Really like your, your emphasis on, on equity and solidarity there. I, I think one way to look at it is, is the issue of, of um, vaccine patents, of course. Um, to accelerate the global vaccine rollout, the U.S. faced international calls to temporarily waive um, COVID-19 wow. vaccine patents. Um, so far, it has refused to do so, but there are other sort of developments um, that we're seeing in, in Africa and African countries. 
the creation of an mRNA vaccine te technology transfer hub in South Africa, for example, um, are these going far enough? Should the EU and European governments do, do, do more to compel companies to share their knowledge and technologies, if not their intellectual property? Yes, I mean, we, we are advocating as WHO, and I'm sure you've heard our director general say so many times, there's this temporary waiver of intellectual property within the context of a pandemic of this severity and, and impact that I think we shouldn't forget. You know, quite often when we look at the data in terms of cases and deaths, people think Africa has had a, an escape somehow out of this. It wasn't the devastation that was, uh, that was predicted at the beginning. But if you look at the multifaceted impacts of this pandemic, the economic impacts of the pandemic, they are huge. And in African economies, they are going to be prolonged. They are going to last longer than they are than in, in wealthier countries that we will be able to rebound more quickly. So it really does make, would make a difference in terms of the speed at with which this um, technology transfer, the, the waving of uh, intellectual property would enable local production in Africa to, to scale up, to expand, and to, to build this, um, to, to speed up building this, this future that African political leaders are very firmly and strongly working upon now. That, that's one of the good outcomes, in my view, of uh, this very difficult experience. You know, I've, I've worked in the past a lot in HIV, and I have a strong sense of deja vu around these discussions of the TRIPS waiver during a pandemic, because that's exactly where we were in relation to access to antiretrovirals, and that did not succeed. And, and you know, certain financing mechanisms were put in place and funding is available in Africa, but we did have a slow process of access to, uh, to, to antiretrovirals, and millions of African people have died who may not have died if this had happened more quickly. So the so I, I do think that's still a valid issue on which there needs to be continued uh, discussion. Again, translating the statements about solidarity into you know, action that will enable this shared future, shared, more equitably shared future in terms of capacity to produce critical tools uh, for public health, not only for this pandemic, but for the future as well, because Africa is a a big consumer of, um, of vaccines, especially uh, childhood vaccines, given the, the structure of the African population. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so it is our hope that the, the uh, you know, the advocacy will find uh, a positive response at some point or other. Nevertheless, there, there have been some positive developments, as you are aware, um, WHO working with other partners has, has in, in South Africa established uh, an mRNA hub, which is now expanding to a number of countries, uh, Senegal, Rwanda, and others. So, I, I mean, one, one of the most interesting and exciting aspects of this very difficult situation has been these developments, which I believe are going to take root in the future and change the situation for the next very big challenge that's going to to to, uh, um, to confront us, which is inevitable. What is, is, is important now is to see how this gets consolidated. All this has been done in a big rush, uh, in a way to respond to the concerns about inequity. And um, clearly there'll be need for sustained uh, investment in these production facilities for these partnerships between North and South 
um, to continue for the creation of a market where these tools will be deployed at, at such time, all of this. But I, I think it's very interesting and exciting at the moment. But it certainly needs that added element of translating the solidarity. Um, yeah, I think so. You've already hinted at some of the lessons that we could draw from the COVID-19 pandemic for global public health and, and pandemic preparedness. Um, on this point of a shared vision, do you see um, there are any potential for the EU and the AU for Africans and Europeans to advance such a shared vision? Um, would a new international treaty, for instance, um, play any role there? Um, yes, I, I think, I mean, certainly the discussions that have been going on, the collaborations that have Uh, that have uh, been initiated between the EU and, and the AU offer many opportunities to, in a way, negotiate around each other to, to, to set out the parameters of what would really be an equal partnership. And, and there are clearly some issues that need to be ironed out there. But uh, let's say that the, the spirit is good. Uh, people in the, in, the, in the African Union speak a lot about respectful partnership. And I guess that means partnership where each other's points of view are listened to and responded on and translated into action going, uh, going forward. I, I certainly, I think a, a pandemic treaty, which would be, a, of course, a global treaty in which Africa and the, the EU and, and, and the, the EU would be key uh, players, is, uh, is a very important instrument around which to explore this, uh, this further. It, it really needs to spell out, it would spell out mutual obligations and mutual accountabilities, as well as what then would be agreed as incentives and even sanctions to make sure that, you know, all the countries, the regions respect the principles of such a, of such a treaty. I mean, we have a good basis in the international health regulations, which spells out what is needed by countries first to establish your capacity so that you don't constitute a danger to your neighbors and to the global, global community. You need to invest in certain capacities uh, in your surveillance system, in the human resources, in the lab, et cetera, in the response capacity. And you need to behave in certain ways. You need to share data. You need to report, share information with your neighbors. And in a sense, share a response process with the neighbors. And, and so the, the discussion is ongoing now about, um, about a, a treaty and uh, including, of course, uh, the means to enable countries to play their role and possibly even a financing mechanism for, for such a treaty to become a reality. You know, we, we've carried out on the African continent um, an analysis of the capacities of our countries and external evaluation Of, of the international health regulations capacities of our countries. So the information is there about what gaps exist and what is needed to enable African countries to be in a better position the next time. Uh, what's been lacking is the financing. So this is work we started doing just after the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa, when there was, again, a very strong international drive to let's work together to reduce our shared uh, vulnerabilities. And we've been a bit um, concerned that once the acute risk faded away, 
the, if you like, peacetime investment, both by countries and at the international level, in filling these gaps so that perhaps the, this pandemic might have found African countries in a better position, just did not happen. So it's, it's those kinds of issues that need to be taken into account. I mean, in terms of um, playing by the rules, so to speak, I, I found it very ironic that uh, at the time that uh, South Africa and Botswana announced the discovery of the Omicron variant, there was actually a meeting taking place where this treaty was being discussed. In, at, the, at the global level in WHO. So I was struck by the fact that, you know, in the search for how to behave towards each other as uh, as members of this club, if you like, because the international health regulations uh, members that sign on to a treaty are basically a club where we agree, these are rules, this is how we're going to play our game or do our business. At the same time as, uh, you know, ways to improve all this were being looked for. Countries just announced these uh, travel bans on Southern African countries, did not inform WHO, did not you know, behave according to the rules that were being discussed at the time. I found that supremely ironic. And it was a lesson then between the discussions, sometimes the rhetoric and the actions, and very importantly, these agreements that are made between countries and the degree to which they really are going to govern how governments uh, behave. So in, in, in this discussion, it, 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 to me, it will be very important to, to look for. So what will be the incentives that will make countries take into account the treaty or the international health regulations in the way that they behave? And if they don't, because we have had on multiple occasions uh, proof that when, when such things happen, other factors come into account uh, we, we've seen how politics at the national level has been such a strong feature of the response to this pandemic, perhaps naturally, because it's been such an extraordinary situation where the risk has been so great. But, you know, if, if then countries break the rules of the club, what are going to be some of the sanctions that will make a difference? In my view, this discussion on the treaty needs to get to that extent. And we, we've had discussions like this before, but perhaps this extraordinary experience of the pandemic will make us get to that extent, explore some uncharted territory in terms of this and try some things that have not been tried before. I think that's, um, that for me, that's, that, that's been the lesson of the pandemic. And that, that I, I believe very strongly that this treaty is a very, very important uh, instrument process that's going to continue to, to, to ensure that countries work together. Because the last thing that we want is a kind of disintegrated and fragmented approaches with countries going in each other in, in different directions. So it's a very important process that is ongoing. Thank you, Dr. Modi, for, for a fascinating discussion. Um, I listened carefully, and I hope Europe did too. Um, Europe Listens is part of ECFR's Reshape Global Europe Project, supported by Stiftung Mercator. Thank you all for tuning in and listening in. Until next time.